right. Welcome to another edition of our Uncommon Grounds. Blink, blink, blink. Blink, blink, blink. Yeah. <laughs> So, Shannon, how's your day going? Uh, my day is going fantastic. I've already been in a, a community health sciences class this morning. We've been doing presentations uh, with the students. Uh, it's been a fantastic day. Awesome. Um, yeah, so today on the episode, who do we have? Today we've got Courtney Rappi. She is a registered dietitian located in the beautiful Reno, Nevada area. She received her bachelor's of science in nutrition and dietetics and completed her dietetic internship at UNR. Courtney currently works at Roundabout Meal Prep as the assistant program director, but she's going to be moving to Medford, Oregon soon to work as a clinical dietitian at a hospital specializing in long-term care. Courtney runs Fit and Fabulous Nutrition on Facebook, where she shares workout tips, recipes, and hot nutrition-related topics. Courtney's approach to nutrition is one that focuses on achieving realistic, attainable goals through evidence-based recommendations, shifting away from fad diets and quick-fix approaches. In her free time, Courtney competes as a nationally qualified bikini competitor, loves cooking and hiking with her dog, Dexter. So Courtney, in a lot of different ways, uh, aligns with On Common Ground and our uh, methodologies and our impact in the community. Yeah, and we want to say thank you for being our first guest on the on this podcast. Wow, all right, yeah, uh, quite the honor for sure. Thank you so much for that wonderful info. Um, that introduction, the mission statement, the community outreach, everything that you know embodies my beliefs as a dietitian, as a healthcare practitioner, um, completely line up with the goals of On Common Ground. So when um, I was reading up on the program in and of itself, I knew that it was a good fit. So you know, I've had an amazing experience doing the charity events, um, teaching nutrition classes to low-income um, residents in the Reno, Nevada area, just doing tons of fun things with you guys. So it's been a blast. Awesome. Um, we do have a few questions for you. Um, we can just go ahead and just jump straight to it. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. What made you, what made you become a, a registered dietitian? Cool. Um, yeah, that's actually a great question. So I have actually wanted to be a registered dietitian, nutrition professional, I guess, because I didn't know what a dietitian was in the very beginning uh, stages of kind of figuring out that nutrition was the path that I wanted to go into when I was in high school. So we had a um, class in uh, freshman year, my health class, and one of these sections, it was just one week long, was nutrition. And that's all you get in high school. At least at my high school, we got one week of nutrition education. And, you know, we did some body fat analysis where we got to see, you know, what the BMI was, how it uh, correlated with your risks for health implications and disease. And one of the things that we did was we looked at menus from common fast food chains and restaurants compared to the recommended daily uh, intake guidelines that are set forth. And I remember just being blown away with the fact that a lot of the things that we were offering to Americans, um, you know, that were on the go, that were easy to grab, that were relatively cheap, were not conducive to their health goals and their nutrition because they were so, so high in sodium, so high in excessive calories, so high in um, sodium, fat, things that just weren't conducive to, you know, good health and overall wellness. Um, so I remember that kind of was a light bulb for me. And I was like, wow, you know, someone needs to be able to help these people or at least give the these people the information and education that they need. So 
you know, they can make the right choices, not that they have to avoid any of these foods by any means, but that way they have the opportunity to know, you know, what they're putting in their body, how it affects their body, how it affects their health. Um, So I did a little bit of research and found that there was a job like that, and it was a registered dietitian, and that, you know, as a registered dietitian, your ultimate goal is to provide the public with as much information about nutrition um, and how it can affect their body and how it affects their state of disease, how you can take proper preventionary methods to just improve your overall health and reduce all these risk factors for all of these diseases that we are coming to find are almost always linked and associated with nutrition and dietary intake. There's yeah. a huge connection. I, I uh, read a comment a few weeks ago that struck me really strongly. So that uh, humans are basically just houseplants with complicated emotions. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. Got a, lot of, got a lot of the similar needs as far as physical nutrition and everything like that. What are uh, some of the importance of, of making sure that our bodies are filled with the right nutrients? Well, you know, um, Americans from all income groups, regardless, fall short of meeting federal dietary guidelines. You know, we consume diets that are way too low in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, uh, low-fat dairy products. Um, and conversely, we're doing the exact opposite. We're consuming diets that are really, really high in added sugars, sodium, saturated fats, a lot of convenience processed foods because we as Americans are so rushed, so pressed for time, so on the go that, you know, the only thing that makes sense is to, you know, grab something that's relatively cheap, relatively easy to eat. You can eat it in your car. And unfortunately, for the most part, those things are the foods that aren't necessarily the healthiest for us. So kind of going back to your question, the things that we can do is, one, um, just having the knowledge, having the um, ability to know, you know, what is a healthy diet and what is not a not so healthy diet. Um, And I kind of want to use that to reiterate a really important point I like to set forth as a dietitian is I don't believe in, you know, foods being good or bad. And I don't even really like using the word healthy um, just because when you start thinking about foods and categorizing them as, you know, being something that is good for you or bad for you, when you eat something that is quote unquote bad, that immediately starts this, you know, snowball effect of, oh, well, I'm a bad person because I ate these foods. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, you know, your mental health is just as important as your physical health. And, you know, I think you can have, you know, both healthy nutrition and a healthy mindset about food. Um, It's just important to understand, you know, what foods are going to be more beneficial towards your health versus foods that maybe, you know, aren't so nutrient dense, but are fun foods, fun foods that we love to enjoy, you know, like pizza and alcohol and, you know, birthday cake and things like that. Those things are fine. Um, It's just a matter of balancing the ratio between those foods that are going to give us more benefits for our future health and reduce the risks for diseases. So have have, have a healthy lifestyle with situational exceptions. Pretty much, exactly. You know, um, a lot of fad diets are out there and they exist right now where um, they like to essentially eliminate one macronutrient or one type of thing. There's all these rules uh, set forth with all of these diets and how they work essentially is you're eliminating such a big portion of things that you can eat. So, you know, in nature, you're consuming less calories than you're putting out. So, of course, you're going to lose weight. Of course, you're going to see these effects. But at the same time, you're depriving yourself and you're not allowing yourself to enjoy the foods that you love to enjoy, whether it be, you know, carbohydrates, whether it be fruit, whether it be sugar. Um, So in doing so, you're kind of creating this, you know, negative feedback loop where, you know, you want to eat healthy and you want to do what's good for your body. But at the same time, you have to, you know, put a blanket over certain foods that you can't have because they lead, you know, to perceived weight gain or, you know, bad health, you know, implications when reality, like all foods can't fit in a balanced diet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question. So sometimes the idea of trying to balance out your food can sometimes seem a bit intimidating to some mm-hmm. people. Like, for example, for me, I never really look into how I could balance my food, which I should, but I don't. Mm-hmm. But um, how do you feel like someone can can lose that intimidation and feel like, okay, this is something that's doable I, um, and, and it's easy? That is a really, really good question. And, you know, I think any, you know, health professional, especially a dietitian, um, will say that the best way that you can achieve success, especially when it comes to taking control of your health and your diet, is making small changes. So um, when it comes to nutrition, I feel like, unfortunately, there are a lot of health professionals out there that give this recommendation to people that is seemingly small to them, but for them, it's a big, big deal. You know, for someone, for example, I had a a patient a while ago that, you know, fruits and vegetables were not part of this patient's diet at all. And, you know, one of the other dietitians that I was working with, you know, put on her recommendations and her goals for her to go to five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. You have to think that, you know, this, that's going to be really, really hard for that person to be able to have that goal. If they're not even used to eating one serving of fruit and vegetable a day, they're not gonna, it's not realistic for them to be able to go to five. So when it um, comes to kind of taking hold of the intimidation, um, I would you know, say that the most important thing is to start with a really, really small change that honestly seems so, so easy that it, it seems stupid. It seems like anyone can do it. So if you're um, really, really having a difficult time with getting enough water intake, for example, um, you know, don't start drinking two gallons a day, right? You know, when you decide you want to make this goal, you're going to feel frustrated. You're going to be, you know, uncomfortable. Your body is not going to know what the heck it's doing. Um, so, you know, start with small changes like adding, you know, an extra cup once a week um, to your daily intake. And, you know, as it progresses and as you continue to go up the stairs of success, you're going to look back and see how far you've come. Um, and because you've been practicing that good habit for such a long time, you're more likely to stick to it because it's something that you've taken the time to incorporate into your lifestyle instead of, um, which is what most people do um, when they go on a new diet or try something new in a lifestyle, they just go, you know, balls to the wall, so to speak, and they end up getting really frustrated when they get really tired or really sore or, you know, they slip up and then they feel like they've cycled back to where they started in the beginning. So it's all about making small changes. Wow. Yeah. Psychologically, it makes a big difference if you're uh, talking to yourself all the time, because we all talk to ourselves all the time. And if you're constantly beating yourself up for not doing the things that you're supposed to do, then you, you end up mentally thinking of yourself as a failure. Exactly. Conversely, what you're talking about is is just really kind of patting yourself on the back for those small changes and like, hey, I, I succeeded. I got a glass of water down today. I, I switched out my soda for something healthy, you know, something like that. Exactly. And these little things, they just add up. And like you were talking about the stairwell, it just creates those steps and that and, and to that goal. Exactly. 100%. Um, that's really, you know, what it comes down to is just, you know, giving yourself credit where it's due. Um, and, you know, we're Yanni and I were having a conversation earlier before the podcast about how sometimes you kind of need to put these blinders on and focus on yourself and see how far you've come in your own individual journey Mm -hmm. instead of comparing yourself to all of the people that are, you know, all around you, whether it be on social media, in the workplace, in your family. You know, it's great that, you know, um, Joe Johnson, you know, lost 20 pounds in a month and is doing all these great things. But at the same time, you know, you don't know where he came from. You don't know what his backstory is. You don't know what he did to get there. So sometimes you kind of have to trick yourself into, you know, putting these blinders on um, and kind of focusing on where you came from, what you're doing, and exactly like you said, patting yourself on the back when, you know, you made that small change um, for yourself because in the long run, it's going to snowball effect into these bigger, greater changes that are going to ultimately stick with you and have the greatest effects on your uh, overall well-being. Yeah, that's a wonderful concept. And, you know, a lot of things 
really aren't the person's fault. You know, you get into a situation where you're living in an area where you don't have a grocery store, you're living in a situation where you don't have access to a lot of the things that you need in order to be able to do the things that you need to do. So, you know, a, a lot of these things are really systemic in nature. So, so really focusing on the positives of what you can do where you're at and figuring out, you know, kind of how to, how to make those changes despite any, any, uh, uh, restrictions or any, you know, kind of situational pro- situation, situational problems that you're dealing with. Those are really important. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think that's a good segue into kind of our, our next uh, our next topic of discussion, which is, you know, when you look at, you know, nutrition education and health care and taking care of yourself, you know, how how do you target a population that doesn't have the same access to things that most of us that are, you know, are listening have access to, you know, things like a car, things like health insurance things like the ability to go to the grocery store and get whatever food you need at whenever you need it. Um, it's one of those things that I think a lot of us take for granted. And unfortunately, a lot of healthcare professionals um, don't really see when they're talking to patients that might be of a lower income status. So, you know, it's very, very easy for them to just give them a prescription and tell them what to do. And they think that just because they've given them the information and they show them the risk factors of the damage that not following through with medical advice can have, they assume that they're just going to follow through with the instructions because they want to get better. The unfortunate thing is uh, the reality is that many people, unfortunately, are super, super overwhelmed and confused by the medical jargon that we always give to our patients. So, you know, when it comes down to it, they, these people that we're recommending all of these things to better their health, they might not even know where to start or even have the ability to do something as simple as go to the store every week, you know, and buy healthy foods to meal prep this wonderful, healthy, balanced meal for themselves. When in reality, they're, they're just worried about, you know, can I, do I have food for the day? You know, where can I get a warm pair of socks? You know, they have a medical diagnosis and they don't even have the medication to be able to take care of it. So, you know, when it comes down to it, are they going to choose... Um, the ability to have a nice sit-down meal, or are they going to try to find, you know, shelter for the day? Or are they going to try to find a way to get across town to see their family? You know, things like that. They're going to put food on the back burner because it's just not a priority for them. When you say about, like, when you say, quote-unquote, these people, who do you feel like are the most common victims then of, of this? So this is most often seen with, you know, the lower-income um, population that I feel like a lot of people don't really realize it's as big as it is. Uh, you know, in 2016, I have a statistic here that, you know, approximately 28.3 million adults, which is 11.5% of us, and 12.9 million children, that is a lot of children when you think about the overall population, you know, live in a food insecure household. And, you know, I want to um, use this as an opportunity to kind of give a definition to what food insecurity is. So food insecurity is defined as the availability of nutritionally adequate and safe foods or the ability to acquire acceptable foods in a socially acceptable method. So, you know, how are you getting this food? Are you stealing it? Do you have to use food stamps? Are you having it given to you by a food bank? Um, What are the kinds of foods? Are they foods, like we were talking about earlier, that are quick and easy and fast um, and processed and comes from fast food restaurants and things like that? Or are they foods that are going to be nutritionally dense and give benefits to these people who are so, so at risk for malnutrition? That's a really important point. And, and one of the terms that's being bandied about in society now, you've got the food desert situation where mm-hmm. you don't have healthy food options. But people are starting to talk about food swamps, where when you, when you don't have a healthy food 
location in an area, what ends up moving into the area is a lot of unhealthy opportunities. So you get your fast food, you got your, your corner bodegas, your liquor stores, places like that, where you've got maybe kind of iffy food and then maybe it's really, really expensive, but that's what's available. That's what you can get. Exactly. And I, I think a really good um, image to kind of paint for, you know, our listeners is, you know, imagine, you know, you're driving through not the best part of town, wherever you live, whether it be in, you know, here down in Reno, Nevada or Sparks area or wherever you're living. If you drive to, you know, downtown metropolitan area, um, where, you know, you know that there's a wider group of low-income population, what do you see everywhere? Exactly like you said, fast food restaurants, liquor stores, convenience stores, gas stations. You're not going to see a Trader Joe's and a Whole Foods, you know, in the middle of downtown because it's it's not what the population can afford. Um, it, do- it doesn't make sense. It's not realistic for these people. So they're going to cater to what the low-income population can afford, which unfortunately is not much. So it's going to be foods that are cheaply made, Uh, foods that are able to hold the shelf life for a long time, so they're extremely processed. It's foods that aren't going to be nutritionally adequate for people that are already um, extremely at risk for malnutrition, have um, risk for diseases, or, you know, in many cases already have a lot of these diseases or have undiagnosed malnutrition. And what are some of the uh, uh, negative impacts can have if you you have, like, over a long period of time? So, um, the, the list kind of goes on and on and on when it comes to poor um, diet intake and uh, what can actually happen to your body. Um, you know, not only can you um, be at risk for a lot of diseases such as, you know, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, which is essentially very, very high lipid panel, high fat content, um, kidney diseases, liver disease, heart disease, obesity, um, anorexia, um, where, you know, you're not eating enough to the point where you're essentially putting your body in a metabolic um, state where you actually have to use the nutrition that makes up your muscles and your tissue to feed itself, which is extremely unfortunate. Um, But interestingly enough, um, the research has shown time and time again that these um, low-income populations, most of them aren't dealing with anorexia. They're dealing with obesity or um, or in many cases are overweight because the foods that they're eating are so um, p- nutrient-poor but calorically dense that they're, they're getting enough calories in, but because the nutrition is so poor, they're um, more likely to be overweight and obese than they are to be anorexic, which I think is a, a really interesting statistic. And that's really kind of the who's who of the killers in America right now. Definitely. I was on the uh, Center for Disease Control website a few months ago, and I, I saw a statistic that just absolutely blew me blew my mind, that over 86% of all of the healthcare costs in the United States are related to preventable food-related diseases. 100%. So, yeah. so it's really not just the vulnerable populations that we're talking about that are that are being impacted by this. It's really everybody in America that's that's suffering from this, and that's really kind of being hit from this from an economic standpoint, uh, from a healthcare standpoint. It really, um, even though it's really kind of targeted and focused on these uh, low-income areas where you've got uh, uh, insecure populations, you've got minority communities that are really kind of hit by the hardest. But, but if you look around the country we're kind of trending in that direction. And you see a, a greater and greater percentage of, uh, of people that are just stepping away from health and not really finding that path. Mm-hmm, definitely. And it, I think it's hard to when, um, you know, social media and just, you know, the news in general, we, we don't, and even our education system, I would argue, we, we don't really shine a very, very positive light on, you know, taking care of your body and fueling it with the things that you need. And that's why, you know, quality education is so, so, so important for everybody. 
um, because, you know, if you're growing up in a household that's very low income and doesn't have good access to good nutrition, it's it's more and more likely that you're going to grow up in kind of a very similar lifestyle. So it's kind of this vicious cycle of poverty where childhood poverty and socioeconomic factors such as those inequalities have these health implications that carry through into adulthood. So, you know, there's statistics that have shown that lower childhood socioeconomic status is associated associated with more chronic disease, poor mental health, and more unfavorable um, health behaviors in adulthood, such as those diseases that are related to nutrition and dietary intake. So Absolutely. it's it's very unfortunate because you're kind of in this vicious cycle where, you know, how do you target them? How do you get to this population where this is all they know, this is what they grew up with. It's been in their family for generations. You know, and that's where I would argue that community outreach and, you know, public education is so important. And I just, you know, looking back now, it blows my mind that I only had one week of nutrition education in high school. Whereas, you know, this is something that should be taught, you know, from grade school. You know, what are the benefits of eating fruits and vegetables? How can we, um, you know, do better as a society to get information out there? You know, and I think... Um, we do have a lot of great programs out there. The school lunch program does a wonderful, wonderful thing in regards to trying to get nutrition information to kids that, you know, might come from very, very low income families and households. Um, there's opportunities for them to have breakfast uh, when they come, in, come into school and have meals on the weekends. Um, and if they have a, are they're at a summer camp or a summer education program, we have um, resources to be able to give them food there as well. But, you know, is, is it enough? I don't know. Yeah. So how exactly how exactly do you feel like um, being a dietitian specifically because you are a registered dietitian? How exactly do you feel like that occupation could provide help to those who deal with food insecurity? That's a great question. So as a dietitian, like I mentioned before, you know we go to school for this specifically for you know nutrition education. We know the pathophysiology of the of these diseases. We understand the metabolic pathways that happen. We know what can happen when you don't fuel your body with the nutrition that it needs. So in doing so, um, it's up to us as the experts that are constantly um, being updated on new research that's up and coming, that's evidence based, that's been practiced um, time and time again to relay it out to the community in whatever way possible. So there are some dietitians in the hospital setting, for example, that will give nutrition education to their pa- to their patients. Um, but a lot of people don't see, you know, the other side of dietitians where um, in the community setting, you're a professional. You can go out to um, community outreach programs. You can go out to schools. You can go out to businesses and companies um, and reach out to them and just offer nutrition education. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of undervalued as a dietitian is a lot of Younger dietitians think that they just have to work on the hospital all the time and they they can't benefit the community um, and do things that are going to make a really big impact. And, you know, there's the stigma that um, a lot of healthcare professionals have with dietitians being that, oh, well, you know, you just sit in an office all day and you, you know, you write orders for boost or insure for older adults and that's all we do. But in reality, there's so much more than that. What we have to offer is so invaluable, but I think it's up to, you know, the dietitians themselves, especially these younger dietitians or, you know, dietitian to bees that are in undergrad right now studying for this. It's so important for them to understand that they have the power to be able to do whatever they want with um, their degree and their nutrition education. So, you know, one of the things that I've kind of branched out in doing while I love the clinical side of my field 
Um, I've taken the time to, you know, just do community outreach, reach out to the school districts, reach out to nonprofits like On Common Ground, reach out to businesses and offer to do things like lunch and learn to do nutrition presentations just to get the information out there because, you know, it's really cliche, but knowledge is power. You know, even using social media, for example, to post healthy recipes and share information out there about a fad diet or supplements, things like that, that people are going to read and see every day, you know, something as simple as that could really change somebody's life. Um, so I think as a dietitian, especially targeting lower income populations is just getting the word out there, reaching out to nonprofits that you might not have heard of, um, because a lot of them, unfortunately, are very small and they don't get the funding and the credit and the recognition that they deserve. So a lot of it is just going to be, you know, doing research and getting out there in the community and trying to offer what you can, which is, you know, invaluable nutrition education that is evidence based, that's quality, that is, you know, you spent all this time, money and energy going to school for. So people should be, you know, willing to hear what you have to say. That'd be great if we could just download your brain and just pass it around the country. <laughs> now, you touched on fad diets once before, and what do you think it's important for people to understand about diet myths? Mm, I think the, the the simplest way I can say it is that they don't work. Um, so when it comes down to it, any any diet that comes out, any new diet in regards to you know maintaining your weight in and of itself, because there's diets that exist, like clinical diets that exist, for example, um, that are actually prescribed to patients for a variety of reasons. But when it comes to diets for weight loss and weight maintenance and muscle building and things like that, for the most part, most of the diets that are, um, you know, streamlined on social media that are super popular, um, they don't work because, like I said, you're putting a blanket over, you know, a group of macronutrients or, you know, a specific category of food groups that are quote unquote bad in this diet, whatever it may be. There seems like there's a new one every year that's saying something, something is bad and you can't have it. Um, so once you're taking those away, you know, yes, you're eating less calories because you have less options to pick from, but you're also depriving yourself of foods that you probably really, really liked and really like to enjoy. So you're creating this negative mindset about, you know, something as simple as food, which it's pathophysiological role is really to just give us energy to do the things that we need to do. You know, I really think it's so important for us to step away from this stigma that, you know, food is good and food is bad. And, you know, at the end of the day, food is energy. And it's up to us whether or not we want to decide if we want to put nutrient dense foods into our body that are going to be beneficial, or if we want to put, you know, calorically dense foods that don't really offer much value to us into our body that aren't going to be utilized as well. Which um, I was going to ask, um, how do you feel like exactly these uh, diet myths or like, uh, how, how exactly do you feel like these diet myths um, can be crucial to either people's pocket, uh, people's health, people, um, how they explain it to other people? Because you're kind of saying like the idea of like of uh, understanding, um, you need to understand knowledge is power. Right, exactly. So I think the unfortunate thing is... Um, a lot of the media that is out there has so many followers um, and has so many people, you know, that are tuned in to what media is saying. And because it comes from, you know, a celebrity or somebody that has a doctorate, which, again, you, you know, something a lot of people don't realize is doctors don't have that much nutrition education going into the field um, <laughs> for some reason. I don't I don't know where where that came from, but um, dietitians. You know, the word diet is in our name. We, we are the experts on, on nutrition. So when it, you know, just because someone got a PhD in something, not even necessarily medical science, because you can have a doctorate in other things. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of these like celebrity doctors out there that are, you know, making a lot of money off of these diets and using um, popular fads to use it as a marketing, you know, terminology essentially to sell whatever their product is, whether it be celery juice or books or, you know, keto stuff or low carb bars. A lot of it is just marketing to make money. And, you know, unfortunately, that is the that's the world that we live in is a lot of it is, you know, money driven and profit driven. So um, I think when people see these celebrities and these very famous people um, preaching about things that they're doing, and of course, because they're celebrities, you know, they're going to look super good. They're going to have great bodies. They're going to have wonderful skin they're going to attribute it to this diet. There's new diet that they're on. Um, so a lot of people see these, you know, very popular people that look so good and they're going to want to do exactly what they're doing. When in reality, you know, these celebrities have thousands and thousands of dollars to spend on personal trainers and private chefs and all these people to make sure that, you know, they they look the way that they do. Yeah. <laughs> so and I think that's something that not a lot of us, you know, realize. And a lot of it, too, is, you know, it, it's marketing at the end of the day, like, you know, who's to say that that celebrity is even following, actually following that diet? You know, they might say that they are, but in reality, you know, they might not even be doing it. And it's not always just the public that's being fooled by this. In many cases, the government itself creates policy based on a lot of the stuff that's being put out, and it's not always accurate. And sometimes it's even uh, active disinformation mm -hmm. by different yeah. food, you know, food manufacturers and different yeah, producers. And, and, and that that's the one really unfortunate thing, especially, I think, um, as a dietitian is, um, a lot of these companies get funded um, and where the funding comes from, you really have to look into that because, you know, there's, you know, campaigns, for example, that are advocating a certain food or a certain diet. And then you look back further into it and then you see that they're being funded by the Coca-Cola company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of it is really knowing where the research is coming from, whether or not it's been cherry picked, which I don't know if you know that terminology, but essentially it's when you're picking out bits and information of resource to, um, you know, better support your hypothesis and what you think should be right. You know, like you see this all the time with like Netflix documentaries where um, all of a sudden there's a new nutrition Netflix documentary that comes out um, and the research has been cherry picked so that it makes it seem like um, the message that they're getting across is 100% accurate. And because they did use research, it must be true, even though if you watch the whole thing and you rewatch it, um, most of those don't even have a dietitian that they interview, which just blows my mind. So, you know, you have to really think about where you're getting the information from. Is it somebody that is an expert in the field or is it someone, you know, that's just very, very popular in social media or somebody that does have a doctorate in, you know, something else that isn't even nutrition? Are they a celebrity? Where, where did they get their education from? Where's the funding coming from? It's all of these, all these things that we have to take into consideration when we're looking at where we're getting our information from. Yeah, that's a really good segue over kind of to the larger struggle that we're dealing with, with in America and around the world, too, is that appearance is reality, and you've got to check your sources, and you've got to worry about where are these things coming from, and what's the agenda of the people that are that are providing this information to you. And if you don't do that, then you're just really kind of following along with the, uh, you, you know, just whatever agenda that these groups have. Mm -hmm. And how do you know? You know, especially uh, if you get situations where, like, I, I remember when I was a kid growing up, and I'm, you know, I'm in my late 40s now. But I remember most of my life, fats were demonized. Right, right. And and now we're finding out that uh, you know that fats are you know can be good for you, and you know in large you know if you if you cut fats out of your diet, it can cause major health problems. Mm -hmm. And we're also finding out that a lot of those studies that were that were 
brought into into the into the world back in the 70s and 80s and 90s were actually uh, spearheaded by the sugar industry and by <laughs> different yeah, manufacturers that it, benefited. It is from amazing it. how much you can learn the farther you know that you dive into nutrition, um, and that you know that's again where I think really um, trusting yourself with an expert and a professional in the field. Um, you know we are required by our state licensure. Um, our credentialing board to follow up with um, credentialing credits and edu- continuing education because the thing that's fascinating and that I think kind of um, interested me in the first place in nutrition is it's ever-changing. Just like you said, every few years we're finding out that something that we once thought isn't necessarily the case. We're doing more research every day. We're finding out more and more things about metabolism, more and more things about different food groups and how our bodies are changing with um, the foods that we're eating now, the way that we're processing them, the way that we're even growing them in the agriculture standpoint. So um, it's really, really important to, you know, speak with a professional, someone that, you know, is, you know, essentially forced because, you know, you will get your license revoked as a dietitian if you don't practice uh, properly and by the regulations and guidelines. Um, And, you know, there are some dietitians, unfortunately, out there, and I think this is true in any healthcare any healthcare setting professional that might be swayed by, you know, certain sponsorships and things like that and funding for companies that might not have the right intentions. But for the most part, almost every, you know, dietitian is required to come at everything with as, as an unbiased source and look at the research. What does the research say? Um, you know, and my philosophy is if, if I really don't know, and I feel like I don't have enough information on a topic, I will tell that person that, you know, I'm not 100% sure. Let me go back in the research and I will have a good answer for you. Um, but interestingly, the, the the fun thing about nutrition is most of the time, if somebody asks me a question about, you know, should I do this? What should I do? What do you think of this? I'm always going to start out with, well, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- there is no cookie cutter diet out there. There is no cookie cutter black, white method for nutrition. It, it really does depend on a wide variety of factors and what your lifestyle is, what your genetics are, you know, what type of physical activity you're doing. So it's it's hard um, because a lot of people say, you know, they'll ask me a question about like, well, I heard something, something is bad. I'm like, well, blah, 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 you know, and then I have to go into the research and say, well, this research article and this study said this, but, you know, this one contradicted this one. So if you compare the two and, you know, kind of look at all of the research as a whole, and look at these meta-analyses of tons of research that's been done, then you can kind of come up with a generalized answer. But even then, like, nothing is set in stone. There's always exceptions. There's always exceptions. So, you know, when people always ask me, you know, what what diet is best for X, Y, and Z? Again, you know, it, it all comes down to a wide, wide variety of factors of, you know, what your lifestyle is, what you're looking for, what you're doing. So... I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's safe to say that everyone could benefit from eating more fruits and vegetables and grains and things like that. But, Whole foods. But, you know, even then, like a, a perfect example is, you know, someone tried to make the argument with me that um, every single person can benefit from whole foods and fruits and vegetables. And then, you know, I had a perfect counter example. There's people that have um, digestive problems that actually can't have whole food and digest <laughs> it. So, right, you know, even something as simple as fiber, which is awesome for all of us. Like, I'm such a nerd when it comes to gut health and fiber. Some people actually, for, you know, an extended amount of time, can't eat fiber for whatever reason is going on in their gastrointestinal system. They can't process it. They can't break it down. Their bowel needs to be at rest for whatever reason. So even something that most people should have, there's always going to be an exception somewhere. 
Yeah, so you, you pretty much have the same kind of general uh, uh, concept that we have as a nonprofit organization is trying to hit the greatest amount of people with the greatest amount of information. Exactly. Trying to still, you know, a, a few nuggets of wisdom that are going to work for the majority of people and then start drilling down into into exceptions and kind of individual situations. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that's where dietetics is so interesting is because uh, the farther that you go into it, the more specialized you can become if you want to, you know, get more education in a certain area such as, you know, diabetes management or oncology cancer treatment and nutrition. Um, there's a wide variety of things that you really, really can get extremely specialized. Like I've met dietitians that specifically specialize with pediatrics in the NICU, whereas, you know, because I'm a new dietitian, I have, you know, such a wide range of areas that I'm interested in. But, you know, the farther and more um, in-depth you go, you really can be very specialized um, in a specific field. But when it comes to community outreach, again, just like you said, um, you want to try to target as many people as you can with those nuggets of wisdom and kind of the overall message. You know, try to get some physical activity. Try to eat some more fruits and vegetables. Try not to eat processed food all of the time. And if you can, what choices can you make, you know, that can change your outcome? So, um, you know, you sat in on one of my classes uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, where we uh, – the whole topic was – making healthful choices when you're eating out at restaurants. It wasn't about, you know, you can't eat at fast food and you can't eat at restaurants. But again, uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier, for some people, that's just not realistic and that's not an option. So right. if someone only has $5 for the day to spend on food, do you think they're going to be able to go make, you know, a wonderfully balanced, nutritious meal? Or are they going to, you know, not have the access or even the transportation to go do that. They're going to need to have some type of quick, easy meal. So the whole purpose of that lesson was an hour worth of talking about what foods and choices can you make when you're at a restaurant that are going to just be more beneficial to your health. And there is a, a, a lot of movement that, that I've seen, you know, across the country where even fast food restaurants are starting to, you know, provide more choices and provide more opportunities. Like mm -hmm. one of the things I used to do uh, when I was when I was hitting fast food a lot is I'd skip the bun. You know, mm -hmm. put a put a burger down on a pound on, on a bed of lettuce or whatever they've got available, and right there you're cutting out a third of the calories mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the you know kind of like white flour type stuff right. that that really kind of hits you. And and those are the little things that even if you're stuck, you know, if if you're going to go to restaurant A or fast food joint B, you can look at the menu. You can really kind of take that extra few seconds to try and figure out, okay, what's going to work for me? You know, what can I pull off this menu that's going to make a make sense? from a nutrition standpoint and still be tasty. Right, exactly. And I, I think that's so important when you're looking at these, you know, lower income populations, because that's going to be something that they're more likely to listen to and stick with and follow because it's something that's already a part of their lifestyle. You're not expecting them to go, you know, do something completely different that they're not used to doing and being or even having the opportunity and the ability and resources to do. But instead, you're working within their means and within something that they already do on a daily basis. Um, and again, if you're taking my, you know, recommendation of making small little changes every few days, you know, that's going to be the ultimate um, benefit in the long run because they're more likely to stick to it. So if, you know, somebody of lower income doesn't have a car and, you know, is couch surfing weeks to weeks at a time, um, it's more realistic for you to give them little nuggets of information about, okay, well, you know, if you're, if you live on, on this corner of the town and there's these restaurants around you and these fast food chains or these grocery stores around you, you know, what can we do together as a team? I think it's really important to, to um, make sure that the, you know, population that you're speaking with knows that you are on their team and you're on their side here. Um, a lot of the time, a lot of 
healthcare practitioners and professionals like to lecture their patients and their clients into doing what they quote unquote have to do. Um, whereas, you know, I like to take it as an approach of, you know, what can we do together to improve your nutrition? Because, you know, we want to improve, we want to get healthier, not just you need to do this because X, Y, and Z, because guess what? They're, they're not going to do it. They're going to feel like they're being, you know, talked at. Um, they're going to feel like they're not capable of making their own decisions. They're going to feel like they're illiterate. They're going to feel like, you know, they don't, they're not taken seriously. So when you kind of eliminate the feeling of them being a, you know, a lesser than you, um, I think it, it kind of creates a better value and yeah. a better um, relationship with, with your patient, with your client, with the community. Um, so I always try to, you know, approach it in the sense that, you know, we're working on something together, together to, you know, improve their nutrition as a whole because that way they can, you know, ultimately have better chances at success in the future by taking control over their life and their health. Because um, ultimately, it, at the end of the day, their nutrition and their wellness has f- factors on so, so many things. Um, and I actually have a really interesting, you know, um, thing to say about that because um, when we think about things like that, we, we, we take it for granted because there's things that most of us listening, we've always had access to. Um, but when you're dealing with this specific population, this demographic, it's important to take it into consideration before you just go out giving them nutrition and medical information because what you're asking them to do just seems so unrealistic. And mm-hmm. they're, they're just not going to, you know, it's going to go one ear and out the other. They're not going to listen to you. Yeah. And, and we keep talking about them. We could talk about specific socioeconomic groups, but it's really all of us. Like every one of us is struggling with these situations all oh, across. Yeah. And so the more that we can put ourselves in each other's shoes and the more that we can be coaches and cheerleaders in each other's section rather than finger waggers, I think the whole uh, the whole situation is going to be a lot more effective. And, and, and it's a process of building community, too. You know, one of the situations that we've got across this country is people feel alone. People feel isolated. They feel like they're they're all by themselves. They don't have uh, the support system and the and and you know any place to go to be able to get these resources and these uh, you know kind of the the information that they need, the resources they need. And you know, I keep using that word they, but it's really you know it, it's all of us, us working together. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you know, if you've got uh, as a dietitian, you've spent a lot of years working to be able to gather this knowledge, to be able to put it in a, in a cohesive format so that you understand kind of how this whole system works. And now the challenge as you're moving forward into your career is going to mm-hmm. be how do you translate it that? And how do you get that in a, in, in a way that, that people can understand? And how can you get that across the community and across the country and across the world? You know, so that I, I really, um, I want to say I, I am incredibly proud of you. I think that you have done an amazing job in, in, in really kind of putting yourself on that path forward and, and, and going out and doing great things. And I, I hope to see a lot more in the future. Thank you very much for the time Ooh. you spent. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I absolutely loved being a guest. Like I said, On Common Ground was and is one of you know the most amazing organizations I've ever had the pleasure of volunteering with and working with. Um, and if you know this is the first time that you're hearing about them, I implore you, I encourage you, go look them up online, do some community outreach, see what you can do to be a part of this amazing, amazing movement, which is essentially just you know providing education and good quality um, food, nutrition, information, just even daily supplies that things that we take for granted for like toothbrushes and um, underwear and things like that. Um, this you know organization is able to provide those things for not just lower income populations, but for everybody. But we really are trying to target you know this group of you know very unfortunate people that live among us and like I you know like I like to stress you know we are a community and we are in this together and it's up to us to kind of hold hands and join together and lift each other up and be the cheerleaders that we need
Absolutely. And I'm going to do a shameless plug. This is a SNAP education uh, funded effort that we're working with with Uncommon Ooh, Ground. Snap. snap, big stuff. <laughs> and I was I was cracking up because you, you were repeating over and over the, the, the little changes that they make, you know, the little steps that you take that they make big changes. And that's actually some of the USDA messaging that we've been passing out. We've got a five foot billboard down on Second Sierra Street that's got that exact message in it. Exactly. And yep. so it's so universal. And some of these things, are, they, they, it, it's not really complicated stuff that we have to go, don't go into huge detail on. But when we really focus on the basics, we're going to be able to get a lot farther together. And so thank you all for joining us. And um, and, and thank you, Courtney, for uh, just being an awesome person and for coming down and, join, and, and sharing your uh, knowledge with us today. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. It was an absolute blast. Hopefully you guys learned something interesting today. And again, if any of you are, you know, future aspiring dietitians, I implore you, you know, dive into it with your heart and your soul, do what you can, you can make these changes that can really drastically change somebody's life, whether it be 100 people or one person, you can change their life. So hopefully, I answered all your questions. And uh, we had a good time. I, I would say so. You're amazing. You're amazing. Awesome. Start at home and kind of work your way out. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds right. great.